Okay, let's go ahead and get started with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we do come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, thanking you for salvation that only you can provide through him. Lord, we know that you are the sovereign of all of your creation. Lord, as we study Ezekiel, that becomes more and more apparent to us. So, Father, we do give thanks to you this morning for the privilege we have to look into these pages. Pray that you would uh, give us an understanding that comes only from above. Help us to understand what you have written and what it means for us today. Lord, may everything that we do this morning be pleasing to you. May you be satisfied. May your name be praised. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. This is week number 27 in our study of eschatology. And we're over in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, which go together. They're all about a war that happens sometime in the future of Israel, I believe. And this war, um, like the one that's in the book of Revelation, um, the forces come against Israel, and then God himself steps in out of heaven and destroys the invading forces. And so um, this is not God just leaving the universe to do whatever it wants to do. This is him intervening. And we looked at a couple of things last week that said actually exactly that. Now, I'm readily willing to admit that 38 and 39 of Ezekiel are difficult at best. Um, not so difficult to understand the activity that happens, but difficult to understand when in the grand plan of God this takes place. Um, there's evidence both uh, for and against um, certain periods of time. And that's what we're going to look at this morning um, once we get down to that point. Um, we'll continue, as we always have, to walk through um, the pages of Ezekiel, detail by detail, and, but, in, but try to glean an overview of what is going on in these two chapters. And so last time we looked at um, two main points that I wanted to make, and that was, um, why does this war take place, and who causes it? To take place. And we saw that the God's main reason in this war is so that he might get glory to himself. We, there are several passages where he says exactly that, that his main purpose is that the nations will know me, that through this war uh, I'll magnify myself, I'll sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of the nations. So God's purpose for this battle, if you could call it that, for this war, if you could even call it that, it's more like a slaughter, is so that the nations will recognize who he is and that they'll see his glory and his judgment among the nations. And so that's, God, that's why this war happens. That's what his purpose is in it. And as you think about the grand plan of God for his creation, that's really his purpose all the time. 
is so that he might be given proper glory and honor. That's why he created it all to start with. Um, you remember Christ said, if, you, if men don't give me praise, even the rocks will cry out. So the whole creation is created for God to get glory to himself. And then the second thing that we noted is that God himself is the one who causes this war to happen directly. Um, that doesn't negate the fact that the um, people who come against Israel are doing it out of their own volition, that they make plans, they devise evil schemes, um, they want to go plunder Israel. That's all true. But at the same time, the scripture says that God puts, uh, puts hooks in their jaws and turns them around to come against Israel. He drives them on to come against Israel. So it's very clear that God is the one who's directing the action here, even though men are doing what they want to do. Um, neither one of those things negate each other. They're both true. And uh, the scripture teaches that in multiple places, and you have to accept that. Uh, even people who place faith in Jesus Christ do so because they want to, not because they're made to, or they desire to, or they recognize their need to, but yet we know that it's God who initiates salvation in the lives of men. It's not by the will of men, it's by the will of God, the scripture says. So this happens all, all over the place in scripture, where men do what they want to do, and yet God is the one who's directing what takes place. So God causes this war, and he causes it so that he might magnify himself. And so that's good to understand as you look at the overview of what is going on. Now, last time I started to look at the opening verses of chapter 38, and we will do that again. We'll pick up where I left off, but today I want to go a different tact. I want to back up again, like we did last week, and look at some uh, overall view. I wasn't planning to do this at the beginning of the war, or before we looked at the war, I was planning to do it after we looked at the war. But today I want to look at the time frame of when this war takes place, as given by chapters 38 and 39 and a few other places um, that we'll look this morning. Now, the, the question, there's several wars in the scripture, right? And I mean by wars, things that God brings to an end. I mean, immediately it should come into your mind the war in Revelation where Christ comes on a white horse and uh, speaks the words that kill all the armies that are gathered against him. I mean, there's no battle at all. It says that they're slain by the um, words that come out of his mouth and that there's no battle to grab um, the Antichrist or the false um, prophet they're just picked up and thrown into the lake of fire, the scripture says. There's no, no real struggle there um, because God is almighty and can do whatever he well pleases. So is this the war that happens in tribulation? Um, there's some who think yes, some who think no. Or you could go to Daniel chapter 11 where there is a temporal war that happens in relatively short time. But at the same time, there seems to be an eternal war um, that happens sometime in the distant future in that same chapter, in chapter 11. I think towards the middle, it changes.
from the temporal war to a, to a war at the end of the age. Um, there's some who disagree with that, but is this the same war that we're talking about in those chapters? It could be, maybe it's not. Or does this war happen at the beginning of the millennial reign, which we know is detailed in tribulation? That's when, uh, I mean, in Revelation, at the end of the seven years, there's a war. But there's another war a thousand years later when Satan is released again in Revelation 20. So is this that war? So which, which war is this, or is it totally a separate war? All those questions are legitimate questions to ask and begin to look at some evidence. Now, we won't get through all this evidence today, I don't think, um, but we'll try. And then um, once we get through this, and I'll tell you what I think, then we'll also, I want to compare this war to some of those other wars that I just named. And I think there's evidence, uh, like we're going to see this morning, both directions. That it is one of those, or it's not. Or time frame-wise, is it before the tri uh, end of the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation, or is it that war that's detailed in Revelation 20 at the end of the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ? So, we just look at this, and I'll let you think what you think, and I'll tell you some comments that I have. And as you do this, this was really hard for me, um, that you have to put down your presuppositions. You can't come into it thinking you already know the answer. Uh, if you do that, then you're going to probably get it wrong. You're going to wind up where you always were. Okay, but I think there's some pretty good internal evidence that tells us when this war was or is, or will be. So, it's one of those, right? Either already has taken place, or it's taken place now, or it will take place in the future. It's one of those three. So, um, we'll look first at the ones, at the evidence that I think says that it'll happen at the beginning of the millennial reign. And I think there's some pretty good evidence here um, that says exactly that. So, um, We'll just, I'll pick out some things that, like we did last time to show what the motive for this war was. So beginning in Revelation 38 and verse 16. Ezekiel. Sorry. Yes, we're in Ezekiel 38, 16. Um, so uh, we'll just read what it says there. And, um, well, we'll read 15 and 16 because they go together. You will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and a mighty army. And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. So you see the term there, in the last days. Okay, a term used both in the Old Testament and the New Testament multiple times in multiple ways. They, it doesn't always mean the same thing. So um, both Isaiah and Micah mention this in the Old Testament. So look over at Isaiah chapter 2, right at the very beginning of Isaiah's prophecy. 
Isaiah comes just before Jeremiah. And um, in Isaiah 2, we just read the opening few verses there. And you'll see Isaiah use this. This is after um, God calls Isaiah. And then chapter 2, verse 1. The word of the Lord, which Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So we know what we're talking about. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many people will come in and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Okay? So when is it that the nations won't fight against one another, that they'll parade before the Lord in Zion, which is Jerusalem, and that God will pronounce judgment himself to the nations. Well, that would be the millennial reign. Okay, so this appears, if you look at this term, last days, appears to be talking about the millennial reign. Now, I'm of the persuasion, having studied Peter, that when Peter says that um, a day is as a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is a day, he means exactly that. That the day of the Lord that he uses begins at the end of tribulation and goes all the way through the millennial reign and ends at the end of the millennial reign. I happen to believe that's what Peter means when he says the day of the Lord. And there are plenty of references in the scripture that say exactly that. That the day of the Lord... Um, is, is associated with Christ's second return, and it is also associated right here all the way through the reign of Jesus Christ. You, Peter clearly uses it in that way. So I think that's exactly what he means. There are people who disagree with that greatly, but nevertheless, I think the day of the Lord lasts for a thousand years. And so, um, and maybe a few years more than a thousand. Sure. Yeah. Finishes up saying, uh, nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Right. Yeah, never again. So is that, um, uh, does that exclude the war in Revelation 20, where they clearly come against God again? Now, you have to, it says that they will not have wars against one another. They will never learn war against one another. That is true even in the battle of Revelation 20 because they don't come against each other. They come against Israel and God. So is that what he means when he says never more will they learn war? They're not going to fight with each other. They're all going to be gathered together. And we saw that last week. 
out of, out of uh, northern Africa, out of the north, out of Europe, all out of the remote north, out of Persia, which is over to the east. They all come against Israel, not against each other. So maybe that's what that means when it says they never learn war ever again. Um, because they don't fight against each other. They're all, they're all sided against God. The other thing to mix in there, I think, is the they. Right. Who is the they is in verse 3, where it says, many, not all. Right, right, right. And, um, and I've thought about this some, and if you look in Ezekiel, not everybody comes against Israel. Now, that doesn't mean anybody fights for Israel either. They're just insignificant. So, and when, you know, and I'll just throw this in there. When people look at tribulation, they say, oh, it's the United States and all of that. I think there's some nations that are just insignificant when it comes to the final wars. And we could be one of those. So, oh, well, last week we saw it, right? In chapter 38 and verse 12, where it says that Jerusalem is the navel of the world. I mean, that's true. It always has been true, always will be true. And yet we're pretty much egotistical and think that we're included in this somewhere. And I just don't see it. Well, then there's the Assyrian. Yeah. Right? An individual who is an Assyrian is explicit. Right. Yeah, and uh, yeah, wh what nation does that person come from? Um, that would be a discussion for another day. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, you know, he is, the, he is the leader of the people who destroy Israel. So um, Daniel chapter 9 says, and then you have to think about, well, who destroyed Israel or who destroyed the temple? And I've got some interesting thoughts on that that we'll share another day. Right now we want to turn over to Micah. And Micah almost verbatim says the same thing that we just saw in Isaiah. I mean, it's almost exactly the same. Always have trouble finding Micah. All right, we want to look at chapter 4 in the opening verses there also. And you'll see that Micah uh, apparently had read it, Isaiah or at least knew about it because look at what he writes in Micah 4 beginning in verse 1. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us about his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. They, then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Okay, so there it is again, almost the exact same thing that Isaiah wrote. And you notice that it says there will be mighty distant nations. Even though they don't fight, even though they don't war, they're still considered by the scriptures to be mighty 
and far away from Jerusalem. Those are the people who in the end come against Israel. That's why it says the remotest parts of the north because they're mighty and they're far away. Right. Righteousness is reigning through Christ and the saints, but righteousness is not ruling in the hearts of every person. It is a an obligatory subordination to the ruling law of the land, which is administered by Christ with an exact and almost instantaneous consequence. Right, and that's what these that's what the scripture says, right? That God will render decisions over those mighty nations. So Christ is ruling over the whole world. How exactly that takes place, we're not exactly sure, but we know it does happen. All right, but again, this period, this last days, because that's what uh, Micah is talking about, pictures the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. I mean, no other, not today does he make um, declare judgment between nations. I mean, we don't see that today, right? We never have seen that in history where Christ himself pronounces judgments. Now, clearly he's in control and he's orchestrating things, but he's not here making decisions and rendering judgments. That means he'll sit as a judge and say, you're not right and you're wrong. You know, I mean, that's what that means. He's going to be the one who makes those judgments. Okay, and we don't see that today, and we don't see it anywhere in Scripture except for during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So go ahead, you, uh, Jackie. Um, okay, so I was kind of reading on down. Yeah. You're talking about in Micah? Yeah. Uh huh. Right. Right. So every. Yeah. Right. All right. So in verse five, each one walks in the name of his own God. Yeah, and that's what we're saying that our our presuppositions about the millennium are wrong. There are unbelievers, lots of them, during the millennial reign. Now, not in Israel. Everyone in Israel gives assent to God and is a faithful follower. But in the other nations, no. And so as you begin to think about that end of the millennium, how could there be a war against God when God is ruling in righteousness? Now, we don't know the sequence and steps of how that happens, but we know it does happen. So there clearly are unbelievers in the millennium. Matter of fact, most of the earth are unbelievers just like at the end of tribulation, most of the people are unbelievers. So, um, or even at the beginning of the tribulation, or even today. You know, if, if Christians represent 5% of the world, that's probably exaggerated. It's probably more like 2% of the world's population are true believers. Um, so it's a, it's a speck. It's a small number. Even today, that's true. And so um, it'll be the same in the millennium because people are born during the millennial kingdom and they're born of human parents who are not righteous. They still have the same sin nature we do today. 
And so there'll be lots of people who are born under the curse that never get out from underneath the curse. So, um, even the reference to nations, I mean, that use of God's is rulers, judges. I mean, how, how many people see our, our current you know, political administration as their gods? They're ruling, they're, sure. there's that where their trust is. So, that's the nation formation with the head to it. There's multiple ones. Right. So, the, the millennium is not this rosy place where everything, everybody just gets along and. No, they're ruled with a iron rod. Yeah. Right. Cursed. So you're gonna yeah, and you're gonna live for a long time, but there's still death, there's still birth, there's still life goes on um, in the millennium. Now you know horses really? People go really? Are they gonna come on horses? We don't know, right? But it says they're gonna come on horses. So I tend to believe that all of our armory that you see today will be disabled, which would not be hard to do because it's all driven by electronics and electronics can be, um, can be neutralized pretty easily. So I tend to believe it is going to be kind of archaic in the wars. Nevertheless, I could be wrong. Okay, so you see this term last days even in the New Testament. And I want to look at a couple of those. Uh, look at Hebrews 1. 1 and 2, and you'll see a very different use of last days. And this is what I mean by last days. You have to, um, context is everything, right? Um, You always have to look at the context. Because here in Hebrews, you'll see it's clearly speaking of a different day, I think. So Hebrews 1, the opening two verses God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So this, this is the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know who he is. I know this, that it's not Paul, which a lot of people think, because this author says we learn from the apostles. So he's clearly not one of them, right? I mean, he's second um, generation, if you would, believer. He's not one of those whom Christ taught. He learned it from those guys. And so it's not one of the apostles. So we don't know who it is. But um, here he says, in these last days. So as he's pinning it, he says, these are the last days. So the last days last a long time because they were true then when the author of Hebrews wrote this and they're true today. The whole um, age of grace for the church is the last days. So it goes on for a long time in this context because Jesus Christ spoke then and he's still speaking today. And so very different use of the term last days. Clearly not what Micah and Isaiah were talking about, because here you don't see anywhere in Hebrews where Christ is ruling over the earth. Okay, so different use. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and the opening verses there, and you'll see again, this is Paul writing to uh, Timothy. Timothy. 
You know, something interesting about Timothy is I've thought about Canton Bible Church and installing a pastor and, you know, all of those things, ordination and all of that. I mean, we do know that Paul laid his hands on Timothy when he first went with him. So basically um, singling him out. But nowhere in all of Scripture do you see him installed as the pastor of um, any church, including Ephesus. He goes there and he preaches there and Paul tells him to preach, but nowhere do you see any kind of ceremony or official installation of Timothy as the pastor of Ephesus, even though he was. Right, I mean, you just don't see that. So when people get hung up on that, read the scriptures. And you'll see it in the scriptures even. Even though they're leaders and they're very clear and distinct and they're called and they're separated and set apart and all of that, you don't see any installations of, of them in their office. So, anyway. Sure it is. Yeah, yeah, it is a human. And I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just interesting to look at what the Scriptures teach. You see then God was equipping and gifting the men that then would be identified. Right. Theoretically, yes. Right, or even an unbeliever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, we won't go there. <laughs> so we'll just leave that. We'll just let, let that lie. But it's interesting to think about these things. Okay, Second Timothy chapter three. Paul writing to Timothy, but realize very first verse. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. You see that everywhere today, right? See, every one of these things still happening today. You notice in the first verse, Paul says, in the last days. So, difficult times will come. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's just... um, It's rampant, always has been in history, always will be. And these are the last days in the terminology of the writers of Scripture because they thought Christ was coming very soon, just as we should think Christ is coming very soon and he'll come when he well pleases. But you always, you know, all the parables that point to being ready, always being ready, because you don't know when that day is. And so... Um, anyway, this doesn't talk about the millennial reign. This is just talking about where we live now. It's also important to note out that this, this culminates in verse 5. That, that is a very religious community. Oh, yeah. Oh. Very full of religion. Oh, yeah, and it, it was when Christ came, but not true believers. All right, then look at Second Peter, one of my favorite books of the Bible that's also difficult to understand sometimes. Chapter 3, verse 3. 
Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now, that's not true, right? There was a flood. Things were different at the creation than they are today. So they're wrong there, and they're also wrong on the account of saying that Jesus Christ is not coming again. This is one of the major themes of Second Peter, um, is that Christ is coming again. I mean, all through chapter 1, he defends that doctrine. And, so, and then here he brings it up again, in the last days. So it's true today that men mock. Even the, the Jews mock and say that there is not really a Messiah I mean, the vast majority of Jews, other than those that are Orthodox, don't believe that there is a Messiah, that there's any future hope um, that's, just, that's not in their theology. Uh, even of the Jews don't believe that, and certainly um, most people do not believe that Jesus Christ is coming again. But he is. He is. He definitely is, and that's what Peter is writing about. But again, you see, in the last days, is not talking about the millennial reign because people are doubting that the millennial reign will even happen. That's what they're mocking about. So um, the last days can be used in many different ways. So Ezekiel 38, 16, when Ezekiel says um, that this, you know, in the last days, um, you really don't know you can't put a time frame on that. I don't think. I don't see how you could because um, the Old Testament tends to say that um, the last days is the millennial reign, but then the writers of the New Testament don't see it that way. Um, and, and clearly they read the Old Testament. They knew what had been written before, so they're not using that term out of place. Um, so last days is somewhat ambiguous. Yeah. And that, that sounds an awful lot like uh, another view of the millennial reign and the all-millennial view that we're in the kingdom now and it's getting better and better and it's just going to keep going and then... Yeah, I, I want to hear someone today make the argument that it's getting better and better. I really would like to hear that argument substantiated. You know, just point to anywhere on the planet and say it's getting better and better. I just don't see it. Yeah, I don't see it getting better. I see it getting worse. Study the effectiveness of the United Nations. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, any, yeah, I mean, it's not getting better and better. It has not for a long time. No, no. Um, and, and honestly, the uh, all millennials took a big shot in the um, 20th century when we had two world wars. That really took a lot of wind out of the sails of that theology is that this is really getting better, and you've got worldwide wars, you've got nuclear bombs being dropped. I mean, really? But they haven't given up that belief. No, they haven't given it up. Yeah, but, but realize that people that teach that today weren't alive in World War II. You know, I mean, I wasn't alive in World War II. I, I'm one of the baby boomers who came after that. 
Um, so nobody remembers what it was like when the whole world was at war with one another. So uh, we've forgotten, as we always do. Don't learn our lessons. Okay. Oh, no, they're clearly not taught it in school. Um, What they're taught in school is just crazy stuff. Um, Ezekiel 38, verse 17. All I have to do is find Ezekiel. Um, So that was my point A about the term the last days. You can't pin a time frame, I don't believe, on that term. Um, But it does, according to the writers of the Old Testament seem to be during the millennial reign that he's talking about. All right, 38, 17, and 18. Thus says the Lord God, are you the one of, which, of whom I spoke in former days through my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied in those days for many years that I would bring you against them? It will come about on that day when God comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger. Okay, so God asks a question to Gog, who's the leader of this war coming against Israel. Are you the one whom the prophets prophesied about? Okay, and we could go to many places and see this. We'll go to one in Scripture and see where the prophets did prophesy about it. But the first thing I notice here is God doesn't answer that question. He doesn't say, yes, you are the one whom they wrote about. Now, is that implied answer? Well, is it? Uh, That's a good question, right? (laughs) So... Um, look over um, at Joel chapter 3. And there's no doubt that the prophets did prophesy about um, um, a, a war and someone coming against Israel. I can't. It's Joel Amos, right? Yeah. Joel chapter 3. In verse 9. Now, I don't know if you've read 38 and 39 in its entirety yet, but I'll make a point in a second. Chapter 3, beginning in verse three, 9 of Joel. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be roused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, Tread the winepress, come, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decisions. The sun will, and moon will grow dark, and the stars will lose their brightness. 
The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. Okay, so this war could well describe what we see in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So you may be right. It may just be a rhetorical question. And even though Ezekiel was written before Joel, <clears throat> there are other prophecies about the same thing that were written before Ezekiel that speak of all the nations coming against God. Now this language also is some of the language that Jesus Christ used to speak of the end of the tribulation and some of this, this imagery is the same thing you see described in Revelation and in Christ's um, uh, talking to the disciples about the, the temple and its destruction and the ultimate uh, battle at the end. So there's a lot of mixing here of what's being said, but this could be talking about the battle in Ezekiel. And notice the one really phrase that stands out to me that kind of says that is the very last one where it says, then you will know that I am the Lord your God and notice dwelling in Zion. That's what I was going to, because you look at even verse 16, the right. Lord roars from Zion. Right. There. Yeah, he's in Jerusalem, which makes me think this is the battle not at the end of the tribulation, but the battle at the end of the millennial reign. I think this is what this points to. So, I mean, you can make arguments both ways, but I think th that when it says he's in Jerusalem, and that's where he's reigning from, and that's where he's roaring from, then to me, that's the millennial reign. So, um, not sure about that, but it kind of makes it sound like that. So, some of these that I'm going to show you point to both, give arguments for both, either at the beginning of the millennial reign or at the end of the millennial reign. And the beginning of the millennial reign, in my mind, is the battle in Revelation, the first battle in Revelation, where Christ comes on a white horse um, right after the marriage supper, the, you know, feast, and given in Scripture that way, in chapter 19 of Revelation, when Christ comes on a white horse. Um, so that's the beginning of the millennial reign, in my mind. That's the way I parse that. Okay, it, may, it takes a few days to get it established and set up, as all things do. I mean, this is still human history, so it takes some time to get things. I think it says 45 days, actually, it takes to get it established. But it, nevertheless, that's what I think yeah, of. It says 30 days and then yeah. 45 days. He does, and... Um, when we get to Daniel, we'll try and put times on all those because I actually am one who believes you can do that with Daniel. You can take the 70 weeks and you can count them down and they line up exactly like they should. Now, there are people who disagree with me, but that's okay. I'm good with that. All right, now, um, so this could be during the millennial reign and... I tend to think it is during the millennial reign. Now, but at the beginning? well, you know, that's a good question because I've thought about this. 
Is there, Christ comes and he speaks and kills all the armies. Is there a second wave? Uh, I mean, you can make that argument here that there's a second <coughs> wave that comes against Israel. I don't believe that, but I have read that argument. Um, so anyway, put that in your mind. Then go to Ezekiel 39 and verse 7. Ezekiel 39. Clearly won't get all this done today. It's just too much of it to look at. Ezekiel 39 and verse 7. Now notice this. We've seen this before. My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore and the nations will know that I am the Lord the Holy One of it in Israel now let me show you a couple of things look in Ezekiel chapter 36 and remember what we've what I've said is that beginning in chapter 34 you have the restoration of Israel and that happens all the way through until we get to 38 and so in 30, where did I say, 36, verse 21, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for mine holy name, which you have profaned among the nations, where you went, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Now this is at the beginning of the millennial reign in chapter 36. And then in chapter 39, God's saying, I will put an end to the profanity of my name so is that pointing to the beginning of the millennial reign kind of seems like it because we've already seen this before where God says this but I think about that and you see in in Revelation 20 which is at the beginning of the millennial reign that clearly Christ's name is profaned but then you also, well, in 19 of Revelation, then in 20, you see that second war that comes at the end of the millennial reign. So the question in my mind is, are those guys then at the end of the millennial reign profaning the name of God again? They've gone back to where they were at the beginning of the millennial reign. I mean, I don't know how, Christ reigns from Jerusalem and reigns over the whole world, and yet the whole world at the end of the millennial reign comes against him. I know it's orchestrated by the devil. I know that he deceives, Satan deceives the nations again. God must allow that at the very end of the millennial reign. Yeah, he's loose. He's loose and deceives the nations, the scripture says. Right. Yeah, and so, um, you know, what, what is this pointing to? 
because then it, it, it seems to indicate it comes at the beginning of the millennial reign because it matches to what is given in chapter 36, which is at the beginning of the millennial reign. So like I said, there are arguments that say this is at the beginning of the millennial reign. There are other arguments that say it's at the end. Today we're looking at the ones that say it's at the beginning. Okay, so this seems to indicate that. Then look at Ezekiel 39.22. And this is pretty specific. Talking about this war and at the end of it. And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. Going forward. Not that they've already known it for a thousand years. But from that day going forward, they will know that I am the Lord their God. Seems to indicate the beginning of the millennial reign. When Israel is renewed and they're born again and they're given uh, new hearts. And um, so they'll know it from that day forward. From this war forward. So that points to the beginning of the millennial reign. Again. So there's some verses in here that you have to struggle with. Again, at the end of the struggle, I will tell you what I think and why. All right, then I'm just going to read this one and then we'll talk about it next week because I've got some different thoughts about it. 25, uh, Ezekiel 39, 25. And you probably have a little heading in your scripture that says Israel restored. And it is talking about the restoration. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I will be jealous for my holy name. They will forget their disgrace and all their treachery which they perpetrated against me when they live securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God because I made them go into exile among the nations and gathered them again to their own land. I will leave, them, I will leave none of them there any longer. I will not hide my face from them any longer, nor for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. That sounds like the beginning of the millennial reign. When he gathers them together, when he puts his spirit within them. We've already seen all this in chapter 34 through 36. When he gathered them and restored them. So this seems like it points to the beginning of the millennial reign. Now I'll make one comment and then we'll quit. You know in the original documents there are no chapters, there are no verses. So the division that we have, I'm not saying they're bad. I think they're good because they help us define things quickly and all of that. But that doesn't mean they're right. Okay? That doesn't mean they divided it at the right place. So I've got a comment about that when we come back together, if the Lord wills, next Sunday morning. And that'll be the last statement that we'll make about the beginning of the millennial reign and then we'll look at some evidence that clearly seems to point to the end of the millennial reign. Okay? Confused? Good. Thank you.